Good morning, everybody. We praise God for giving us another time in His presence and in His Word. So let's open to the book of Acts, chapter 14, verses 8 to 18. Acts 14, 8 to 18. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that will be on page 923. Act 14, 8 to 18. Here is what the living Word of God says to us in that portion. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and Fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for commanding us to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, as we read a moment ago from Second Peter 3. Uh, we praise you for that. That's, a, that's an amazing command, but we also know it's a command which, unless you walk in us, we have no power of ours to bring that about. So I pray now that you would make this a moment of growth in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Use the weak sermon that we hear this morning to do things which only you could do. Uh, use it to bring transformation and strengthening of faith. Lord, cause us to be established in the truth that is in Christ. Increase our rootedness in the grace that is in Christ and increase our wonder at our King in His beauty, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray in His name. Amen. Two weeks ago, I mentioned when we were in Acts, the first part of chapter 14, that this portion of the book of Acts is very sequential. I meant by that, that Luke tells the things he is telling us here as though he were building a chain. Every single piece fits neatly with what precedes and with what follows. It's as if he is building a chain and adding one piece after the other, hooking up where he left off and continuing to string the story and move forward in the amazing wonder 
of how God's gospel was conquering the world. The last thing Luke told us about Paul and Barnabas was that they had fled from Iconium to Lystra and Derbe, which were cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country of the Lyconian people, and they continued to preach the gospel. So when we hear Luke zoom in on something that happened in Lystra, we are not surprised because he already told us that there had been a flight, an escape from Iconium to Lystra. And when we start going into what happened in Lystra, Luke begins in verse 8 by saying, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. So that is the setting. That's the geographical setting. Geographically, we are in this Lyconian city of Lystra, and there there was a man who was crippled and who had never walked. He was crippled from birth, literally from his mother's womb. He had never used his feet. Now what happened there is is that Paul is preaching and this man gets healed. And the striking way in which Luke tells us the story of the healing of this lame man, I think reminds us of things we need to bear in mind. Three wonderful truths we need to bear in mind as we walk with the Lord in general and as we do mission work in particular. And I think the three things are this. First, very basic, God's power is without bounds. It works the same way everywhere on the planet. There's no place where you can be out of the bounds of the working of God's power. And the next thing Luke wants us to see, I believe, is experiencing miracles does not automatically lead into right theological understanding. Somebody can experience something wondrous and momentous and supernatural, but that does not automatically translate into a right understanding of the person and ways of God. And finally, God alone must be exalted. So let's look at the first. God's power is without bounds. So Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. Paul is preaching There is in the audience somebody who had never used his limbs from birth. He was crippled from birth. This man is listening to Paul, and Luke tells us that Paul looked intently at the crippled man and saw that he had faith to be made well. He had faith to be healed. So Paul discerns by some kind of prophetic insight that God had used the words he was speaking and done a wondrous work in the heart of this man, so much so the crippled man had come to believe that the God Paul was preaching about was able to make him well. Paul saw that by some prophetic insight God gave him. And seeing that, discerning that, Paul said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. Now that's a very interesting command because the To command a crippled person to stand up is to tell them to do the impossible. This man had never used his limbs ever before. And yet Paul says this to him. Now, speaking this way is to say something has to happen from outside of this man. Something beyond this man has to transpire before this command can be obeyed. He'd never used his limbs before. And happened, it did. The words that Paul spoke mediated 
to the body of this man, the new covenant power and authority that is in the name of Jesus. And this crippled man sprang up for the first time and began walking around. That's what God did. The, the command that left the mouth of Paul addressed to this crippled man is of the same order like what Jesus said to the dead body of Lazarus. You remember? When Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, he said, Lazarus, come forth. How do you ever command a corpse to stand up from the tomb and come forth? It's only because the words have the power to bring about what they are commanding. And only the words of Jesus or words spoken in the name of Jesus under his authority can do that. And what Paul said became reality. And the healing of this crippled man in Lystra reminds us, doesn't it, of the experience of Peter and John in Jerusalem as they were going, on, going to the temple at the ninth hour to pray, and there was this crippled man sitting at the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. He was usually carried there because he couldn't walk himself there, and he is waiting to be given some money for his sustenance. And Peter said to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise and walk. And that's exactly what's happening here in Lystra. It's the authority in the name of the risen Jesus of Nazareth that brings about this healing. And, and this reminds us, beloved, that God's power is not geographically contained. You don't have to be in a particular place to experience it. The healing of the lame man in Jerusalem did not happen because of the temple. It happened because of the power of God. And God, because he is not bound by geography, he could do in Lystra what he did in Jerusalem. He is the king of the ages. He is not like a magnet that you have to be within a certain distance of the magnet to feel the magnetism or the force. Of the magnet. Our God is beyond space and time. He says to us through Isaiah, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He, he neither grows weary, there is no searching of his understanding. He fills the heavens and the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, after he came to his senses, confessed, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can hold his hand or say to him, what have you done? His power is not bound anywhere. So the apostles could go out in that name. That's why Jesus would say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The church is operating with an authority that is not bound. It's not dependent on any government. It's not dependent on any kind of system of organization anywhere in the world for God's kingdom to advance. So Luke reminds us, God's power is not geographically contained. It doesn't have bounds to it. The next truth that Luke shows us is that experiencing miracles does not automatically lead to a right understanding of God. It doesn't lead to right theology. We see that in the way the crowds responded to what happened. How did the crowds respond to this momentous display of God's power, to this amazing healing? Well, 
they responded with creature worship. They deified, they made into gods Paul and Barnabas. They made gods out of them. They did exactly what we read in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's what they did. Listen to what verse 11 says. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. That's deification. That's making humans into God. They have transferred everything they ever thought about God to Paul and Barnabas. And you cannot make something else into a God without distorting the truth about the one true and living God. Because he says in his word, I am God and there is none other. So when you create another God, you are attacking his exclusive claim to divinity and deity. Now it's remarkable, these people are not just having a spur of the moment response. They, 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 they kind of carry it on because they are going to transfer to Paul and Barnabas the names of their gods, the worship of their gods, the rituals that they did to their gods. So they were not joking. So, so look at verse 12. They say, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So they are transferring their theology. They always believe Zeus is a god, Hermes is a god. Now, these gods have manifested to us like this. They are transferring their theology. But beyond just transferring the names of the gods, they actually transfer worship. See? We are told further, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. And even with the most impassioned plea, the apostles scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So the response of these people in Lystra reminds us that somebody can experience a real miracle, a powerful supernatural thing, but that will not immediately mean they know who God is because of their experience and they know how to respond to the one true and living God by their experience. Miracles are a powerful confirmation that the God of the gospel is supernatural and supreme and transcendent and, 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 and unchanging in his nature. But only the truth of the gospel will instruct our sin-darkened hearts as to the person and ways of the God of the Bible. Miracles in and of themselves cannot do that. The people in Lystra experienced a wonderful thing and it came from the hand of God, but they are trying to use a pagan worldview to try to understand what God had done. And that just never works. John Calvin, commenting on verse 12 of our text, said, This history abundantly testifies how ready and bent men are to vanity. We are inclined to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And even when God works among us, we are tempted and bent towards exchanging the truth about him for a lie. So miracles in and of themselves do not teach right theology. God alone provides life-giving interpretations of his powerful works among his people. Only the revelation of God in Scripture 
can rightly interpret the manifestation of the miraculous power of God that his people experience. If we use a theology concocted in our heads to try to make sense of what God is doing, we will wind up worshiping created things instead of the creator. That's exactly what the Lystrans were doing. But I don't know if you caught this. There is a real deep encouragement here for believers in Jesus Christ. We can be confident and settled in our hearts that our God will never need to go back and revise something he has revealed to us about himself. These people in Lystra always believed something about Zeus and Hermes, and now their worldview has fallen apart. They have to try to adjust the core, the core beliefs, the pillars of their belief system to try to make sense of what just happened. That's never going to happen to a believer about the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is eternal. He is before all things. He declares the end from the beginning. He is above all things. What he says to us is never subject to revision. What he has revealed to us is true forever. So we will never experience anything that demands that God should go and revise what he has said for us to be able to make sense of that. God's revealed will is never changing. So we can live with that confidence. Whether you're thinking about disease or sickness or whatever trial in your life, or whatever, whatever changes and revolutions the world is going through, there was a time when human beings thought it is the sun that goes around the, the earth and not the earth that goes around the sun. They learned sciences better. They changed that belief. There was a time when human beings did not know about nuclear energy, but they came to learn about it and then developed nuclear weapons. There was a time when they didn't know what was out there in space and eventually men landed on the moon and, and on and on these revolutions come. Today we are talking about artificial intelligence. But whatever revolution the world goes through, God will never need to revise what he has revealed about himself for his people to make sense of. We have a sufficient, solid word in the Bible. We will never be like the Lystrans who will say, well, we always believe Zeus is a God out there. I guess we have to transfer that name now to Paul or to Barnabas. That's never going to happen to our God. That's a confidence we can live with. And it is only a God like this that you can entrust your eternity to. He does not have to learn new things and adjust the theology or the truth about himself. He is the solid rock on whom we stand. He remains the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God to whom belong honor and glory forever and ever. And so those who know him can say with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the response we can give, and that response will be true for endless ages. Because our God did not come into being, He is not becoming, He is not becoming better, He is just perfect, supreme, exalted, and reigning forever. So Luke reminds us, God's power is not bounded, and He reminds us, we need the truth of God's Word to understand the mighty works of God. But the third thing Luke shows us is that God alone must be exalted. How do Paul and Barnabas respond to the response of the Lystrans? Because remember what's going on in the narrative? God does a miracle of healing a lame man who had never walked. And then the Lystrans called 
Barnabas and Paul, gods, Zeus and Hermes, respectively. How do Paul and Barnabas respond? They do three things. They abase themselves, they exalt God, and they invite the Lystrans to abandon the worship of idols and to worship God. Those are the three ways that Paul and Barnabas respond. So let's look at them quickly. They abase themselves. Notice what is said in verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. I want you to notice something of the horror and shock and consternation that gripped the apostles so much so they tore their garments and were rushing into the crowds and crying out to the people. That's the response of Paul and Barnabas to this idolatrous worship of themselves. Now, when a Jewish person tore their garments, they were indicating that blasphemy was about to happen. That's what the high priest did when, in his own judgment, he thought Jesus had uttered blasphemy by saying he's the son of the blessed one. So the crowd, they were shocked that they had been made into such a detraction from the glory of the one true God. They were shocked enough, they tore their garments and they were crying out and calling out in a loud voice to the people. That kind of shock can only be experienced by somebody whose eyes has been opened to see the glory of Jesus Christ as king. We we, we don't have the capacity in us to be shocked when we are worshipped, when we are made much of by others. In fact, we live seeking to promote that. The reason they did this is because they had been rescued from the darkness and death of self-worship and brought into worshipping the one true and living God. Anyone whose eyes have been opened to see what a wretched sinner they are, how deserving of eternal conscious torment they are, and yet how beyond condemnation they have been redeemed by the justifying righteousness of Jesus Christ is horrified when they have a sense people are making much of them than they ought to do. That's what Paul and Barnabas experience. I mean, compare that with Herod. Back in chapter 12, we saw that King Herod had delivered an oration made a public speech, and the people who heard him were saying, that's the voice of a God and not of a human being. And the next thing we were told in Acts 12, 23, was that immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod, and he died because he did not give the glory to God. On Herod's part, he was relishing in the fact that he was being regarded as a God, and being, said, being told he is not just a human being, he is a God. Paul and Barnabas are horrified that that is being said of them. It's quite amazing because Herod only spoke words and was deified and to his own death. Paul and Barnabas did a momentous miracle, but they couldn't stand the thought of being referred to as gods. And, and if you read the letters of Paul in the New Testament, you see Paul is not just acting religion here. He's not just being theologically correct by saying what he is saying here. In Corinth, when, when, when a faction will arise and begin to say, I am for Paul, you would think somebody who wants self-worship 
would say, of course, you should be for Paul. I am the greatest apostle. I, I've planted churches here and there. I have done all these things that no other apostle has done. But how does he respond to that? He says, was Paul crucified for you? What is Paul? What is Apollos? We are mere servants through whom you believe. And it is Paul who would say, whether we eat or we drink, we should do all to the glory of God. His whole existence was defined by a joyful commitment to exalt God in all things. Beloved, we have to remember and recognize that because we are church people, it's very possible to speak the right theological phrases and say things like, praise the Lord. We give thanks to God for that when our hearts are secretly craving the praise of men. That's a real danger we must always guard against. Because we are church people and read the Bible and sing praises to God and worship together, we know enough that none of us will ever say, you know, I did a great job preaching that sermon. Or I did a great job teaching that lesson. Or I did a great job raising that child. Or I did a great job filling the blanks. None of us will ever say that. But it is very possible to say all the theological phrases and our hearts are thinking, I deserve some of that praise because I'm really wonderful at that. I really do that very well. So we must answer at the heart level every single time and every day. Whose name do I want hallowed? Whose kingdom do I want to come? Whose will do I want to see done? Mine or the Lord's? That's a question we must all always answer. Exalting God is something we don't have the natural bent to do. We have to receive help from outside of us to do that. Many of us name, know the name J.I. Packer. A wonderful servant of the Lord, wrote many helpful books. He is outstandingly known for his book, Knowing God. He's gone to be with the Lord a number of years now. A number of years ago, he was introduced at a conference where he was going to speak. And the person who introduced J.I. Packer told, highlighted some of the wonderful things God had used Parker to do in terms of his publications, his teaching, his lectures, and so on and so forth. And J.I. Parker walked up to the podium to begin preaching his sermon, and then he made a few introductory comments. And one of the things he said has stuck with me, because he said, when I listen to the kind of introduction of myself, he means, when I listen to that kind of introduction, I find that I have to ask God's forgiveness for enjoying it so much. It reminds me that I am nothing but another sinner saved by grace, pointing to the God who saves yet more sinners by grace. That's J.I. Packer's view of all what he did and the amazing books that he, he, he published, some of which became Christian classics. So we must remember, we do not wake up from bed just in the mood to give glory to God. Exalting God is a fight, and it's the only reason for which we exist. The power to do it does not lie in us. So let us beware, brothers and sisters, that we take not the praise to ourselves that belong to our maker. If we give, give lip service to honoring Christ and our hearts are craving the praise of men, it will be just a matter of time when that will come out. Because when that idol in your heart is going to be threatened, the real you will come out. 
And even more terrifyingly, if that doesn't happen, it will happen on the day when God judges the world according to the gospel, exposing the secrets of human hearts. So may we not do our righteousness in order to be seen by men. Because that's not what we are called to do. So Paul and Barnabas, they abase themselves. They put themselves right where they belong. And the next thing is they exalt God. Notice verses 15 and 17. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So the, they are speaking here to pagans, people who do not have much of the Old Testament. And Paul is saying to them, the God we are talking to you about is living. He is not the lifeless idol that you have always known. This God made the whole realm of creation, the heavens, the earth, and everything that is in them. And if they were wondering, so why did the nations go so wrong? Paul's answer will be, he did not lose control. Instead, he let the nations go their own way. In past generations, it was a sovereign discretion of the Lord that he was dealing with just one nation for many generations. And yet, he did not leave himself without witness. And how did he do that? He is not a silent, mute idol. He is the God who is there, and he is not silent. How has he spoken? Paul would say, he gave rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So Paul wants the Lystrans to know that the rains that come to you in season, the fruitful seasons you have from your farms, the satisfaction of your hearts with good food and gladness, those are not accidents of nature. That's God speaking. That's God making himself known. Those did not come to you from your lifeless and mute idols. God gave them. If Paul was preaching in our day, he might have added to this list the blessing of advanced medical technology and instant communication and the ease of transportation and the wonder of vaccines and all the common graces that surround us. Those are things from God's hand given as his goodness to hell-deserving humanity. This God is not silent. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if you catch what Paul is doing here. As I said, he's preaching to an audience that does not have the Old Testament. Therefore, this sermon has a unique flavor to it. It's not a lot of quotations from the Old Testament explicitly as the sermon that he preached in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia. Here he knows his listeners do not know the Old Testament, and so he exalts God as he's made himself known in creation. It's like Paul, when he preached to the Jews in Antioch of Pisidia, he starts his sermon from Genesis 12 because they know Abraham and Moses and David and all the patriarchs. But when he's preaching to these pagans in Lystra, they don't know any of these people, but they know rains that fall. They, nobody is a stranger to crops that they harvest from the farms. So he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 to show them these things didn't come to you from your mute idols. God gave them. 
We have an amazing message in the gospel. If you know it well enough, you can begin with any truth in God's world and lead people to the gospel. You can begin with any truth in the Bible and lead people to the gospel. Paul knew the gospel so well, he could start from anywhere and lead people to the gospel. Sometimes our difficulties in evangelism is not because evangelism is hard to do. Because we have such a thin understanding of the gospel, we don't know where to start and how to go from there to the cross. May, may God give us this kind of a grasp of the gospel that we live knowing. We live in God's world. And therefore, we can start with the rain that falls or the snow that falls or earthquakes or tsunamis or anything and help somebody see the glory of the God who's made himself known in Jesus Christ. Paul is exalting the God of the gospel. When he preaches to Jews, he shows them, he exalts God by showing them how he makes promises and fulfills promises. When he's preaching to people who don't have the Bible, he shows how he spoke the world into being and sustains it in being by the word of his power and has ultimately revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are never to change the message. Cursed are we if we do. But we can speak to people in a way that reveals we know where they are, we know how much of the Bible they know, and because God's world is filled with truth about God, and God's word is filled with truth about God, we can start anywhere and lead somebody to the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul shows us here. And then more briefly, here comes the invitation. So they respond by abasing themselves, exalting God, and then they invite the Lystrans. Listen to verse 15. Paul and Barnabas say, We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. May I just say that's not an invitation only for the Lystrans. It's an invitation for any person today who is living their lives for vain things. Anything on which you build your life, other than God, is a vain thing. Whatever else you build your life on, whether your health or your wealth or your education or your status or your family background, I guarantee you no one of those things can make a lame man walk. And if they cannot make a lame man walk, they prove they don't have what it takes to sustain your life in time and eternity. It's only the God who by his power will make a lame man walk and by so doing point to the fact that he can make all who are crippled and made lame by sin to be restored in his son. Only such a God is worthy of your trust. Why would you entrust your eternity to some weak, frail thing that cannot stand the test of time? As God, in healing the crippled man in Jerusalem, was showing, he will restore many Jews through faith in Jesus Christ. So here, he heals a Gentile to show he will equally restore many Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. So I invite you today. You can turn to Jesus. You may not realize just how crippled you are, just how broken you are, just how maimed you are by sin. Everyone here who names the name of the Lord in sincerity, they know they were crippled. They know they were lame and God made them walk spiritually through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And there is grace enough for you today to experience that kind of restoration. That's why Paul would say, turn from these things. He said the same thing to the Thessalonians. Turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come because God raised him from the dead. If you do not know the Lord and not trusted him, I invite you not to waste another moment, not to put it off for another day because today may be the day of salvation for you. Turn from idols to this God. The God of the Bible is one whose power is not bound by space. He is one who teaches us in his word so that we might make sense of the wonders of his miracles that we read in his word or experience ourselves. And he's the one to whom belong all glory for everything in every place and at all times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left yourself without witness. You've spoken in creation. You've spoken in your son. You've given us your word in, 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 in the Bible. We thank you that we have a solid, sure foundation on which to build our lives for time and eternity. Make us a people who live like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, a people who abase themselves in everything, and not just with religious cliches and church lingo, but who in our hearts long to see your name hallowed and your kingdom come and your will done. And Lord, anyone, Lord, who is here has not known you, would you draw them to yourself and turn them from idols to serve you, the one true and living God, through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.